Got my, there we go. All right, that was my bad. All right, a little awkward tonight. We'll get there sooner or later. Glad you came to church this weekend. I'm so glad that each one of you are here as well. This is the close of our series, and I don't know about you, but I personally, uh, in doing these messages, have been so blessed as we've gone through the series, Mankind versus Wild. And uh, if you were blessed or you would like to uh, use this or share with others, we're going to make the DVDs available. And all you have to do is go to the Resource Center this weekend and say, hey, I want, a, I want a full set of the DVDs of Mankind versus Wild. And then you can come back later on and purchase those. If you're at 111th, uh, just stop by the Welcome uh, Center there at 111th and uh, say, hey, I, I want some of those available here. And they'll make them available and you can get yours there at 111th campus. We want you to enjoy that. But in this last, in this last message in our series, Mankind versus Wild, we're going to talk about what's perhaps the harshest environment that anybody can face in terms of survival. I'm talking about the desert. The desert is a place where during the day it can be just boiling hot, and at night it can be freezing cold. You know, in the desert, It's hard to find food, but it's even harder to find something to drink. Just uh, recently, Bear Grylls, the star of Man vs. Wild, uh, did an episode of How to Survive the Sahara Desert. And he gives us kind of an overview of the challenges that one faces in this monstrous desert. Watch this. Come to the Sahara Desert. One of the hottest and deadliest places on the planet. That is just huge. Three and a half million square miles of burning sand the size of the US. Every year people die trying to cross it, scorched by the highest recorded temperatures in the world. Because the sand is burning hot. Being stranded here is like being cooked alive. We've got to go there. This heat is killing. It's going to be my biggest challenge yet. In one of the most inhospitable places on earth. This place is relentless. Only the toughest can survive. Got a cobra. I'm going to show you the extreme lengths you need to go to to stay alive in the death trap that is the Sahara. Now, I hope, I hope I am never stuck in the Sahara. Because if I have to drink camel poo juice, then Jesus can take me home. All right? That's just the way it goes. And I'm sure you hope you're never stuck in the Sahara as well. But you know something? We all face challenging deserts in our lives that can be just as stressful for us. And one of the deserts that all of us face at some point in our lives is the desert of suffering. What kind of suffering am I talking about? Well, let's look at examples of the kind of suffering we can experience sometimes in life. For instance, there is emotional suffering that some people go through. And some of you may be facing right now in your own life. Loss, loneliness, denial, betrayal that hurts us emotionally. Another kind of suffering that we can sometimes face is physical suffering. 
And by that, I mean dealing with abuse or dealing with pain or dealing with disease, you know, uh, suffering as a result of cancer or other kinds of uh, illnesses that can stay with us, chronic illnesses and cause us so much pain. Another form of suffering that we can deal with is spiritual suffering. You know, the silence sometimes that you experience when you wonder, where is God? Why isn't God talking to me right now with what I'm going through? Or what we perceive to be injustice. Why, is God, you know, why does God seem to uh, be so good to those who don't obey him like me? And yet I'm trying to honor God and obey God and he seems so quiet, so silent. And persecution. Sometimes we go through persecution because of our faith in God. Another form of, of uh, suffering that we sometimes experience then is mental suffering. Depression. Whether it's clinical depression or depression caused by, you know, emotional kinds of concerns that we have, things that we're going through in our life, discouragement, doubt. These are all examples of ways that we sometimes suffer in our life. And, you know, sometimes our time in the desert of suffering is short-lived. It's not very long. But at other times, you feel like you're trapped in the desert, don't you? You feel like you spend your whole life in the midst of suffering as though you are trapped in this arid atmosphere of discouragement and difficulty and challenge. Well, if you've ever been in a desert or you feel like you're in one right now, I want you to know that you are not alone. In fact, if you study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to discover that there are many, many people, some of God's best servants who have spent their life in the desert, some of them a part of their lives, some of them their whole entire life in a desert of suffering and difficulties. And there's probably no one who knew more about the difficulty of suffering than the Apostle Paul. For 30 plus years in his ministry, this man endured all kinds of suffering. In fact, when he wrote one of his letters to the Christians who were living in a place called Corinth, he gave a bit of a catalog of the suffering that he had experienced. And I want to just read it for you. It comes out of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just, just listen to him. Paul says to them, I have been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for the churches. So Paul spent a lot of time suffering in his life, going through all kinds of difficulties and hardships. But now, Paul comes toward the end of his life. He is somewhere in his 60s, and he's been arrested one more time, one last time, and he's going to go on trial before Nero, and it's going to result in his death. 
before he dies, he wants to see Timothy one more time. This young pastor that he's poured his life into, who's in Ephesus. And so what are the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul in our Bibles? We hear his loneliness. We hear his hardship. We hear his struggle as he pens these last words to Timothy. Hoping that Timothy will come. Hoping that he will come before the winter. Hoping that he will come before Paul faces the razor sharp sword of the executioner. If you're in your Bibles or haven't opened them up up yet, move over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 with me, would you please? And I just want to begin reading there in verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. And I want you to listen to Paul's closing words of this letter. He says, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, be sure to bring the coat I left in Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books and especially my papers. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and those living in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth and I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubula sends you greetings and so do Prudence, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. May the Lord be with your spirit and may his grace be with you all. You know, at a time in Paul's life when he might have looked forward to retiring, taking a break, some kind of encouragement, At least the gold watch to say you did a good job. Instead, what he faces is hardship. Instead, what he faces is death. Instead, he's in a prison that is cold and damp and dark. He's in there with other felons. He's sleeping on the floor. He's much older. He looks much older than he is because of all he's been through. The bones which have been previously broken and beatings that he's endured are all aching. Here's a man that would have had every right to be anger, to be bitter, to be resentful for having lived such a harsh and hard life only to end it with such a cruel death and such humiliation all alone. And yet when you read his final words, though he mentions some of that loneliness and though he longs to have Timothy come and see him, he's still able to talk about others. He's still able to talk about glorifying God with his life. How did Paul do it? How did he finish well? What are the secrets to crossing the desert of suffering and making it to the other side? Well, there are just a few verses in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that reveal to us the secret to surviving the desert of suffering. 
Look at verse 6 with me of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. Now, in verses 6 through 8, we have some of the most rich imagery that the Apostle Paul has used in any of his letters. And so when Paul talks about the fact that his life has already been poured out, something he mentions in another letter to the Philippians, he is conjuring up a picture in the minds that they would have understood in those days, especially those who were Jewish would have really understood what he was talking about. This idea of his life being poured out as an offering would have conjured up the pictures of a libation offering. You say, what is a libation offering? Well, sometimes it was the custom of the Jews to get some wine and to take that wine and to pour it out on an altar. And the red wine came to represent the red blood of the lamb that was sacrificed. And so this was then offered. The expensive wine was used, and it was used to offer a sacrifice to God, to say, you know, God, I'm pouring out my life energy to you. And what Paul says is, I have and I am pouring out my life energy to the glory of God. We sang about that. Not to me, but to God be the glory. And so I want you to imagine with me for just a couple of minutes that your life is represented by this expensive bottle of wine. They wanted to buy a cheap bottle. I said, no, I want you to buy an expensive bottle of wine. You say, Pastor, I don't know about you some days buying expensive bottles of wine. First of all, should you be buying wine? And secondly, should you be buying an expensive bottle of wine? Let me ask you a question. How much is your life worth? How much is your life worth? I don't know about you, but I value my life. I try to take care of my life because I see this being really valuable. How do you see your life? What was Paul's life? Paul's life was a valuable life. We all look at our lives and we we prize our lives. We see our lives as being very valuable, very expensive, like an expensive bottle of wine. And the tendency is to say, make sure we don't waste it. Make sure we don't misuse it. Is your life worth being poured out for the glory of God? Is God worth you pouring out your life to him? I hope the answer is yes. I hope you're willing to say, you know, no matter whatever my circumstances are, whatever my situation is, I, I want God to use my life. I am willing to allow my life be poured out for the glory of God, even though men and women may look at my life and say, what a waste. No matter what my desert experience is like, no matter what suffering I'm going to go through, God, if this is the place you want me to be, then God, I'm going to pour my life out for your glory and for your honor. I'm going to drain my life energy for you. Let me ask you a question right now. Is your, is, your, is your bottle full? Or is it being drained out for God? I don't know about you, but I've made up my mind that whenever God calls me home, whenever that's going to be, I want him to pour me all out first. I don't want to show up in heaven with still some in the bottle that I've been keeping for myself. I want to give him my all 
for his glory, his praise, and his honor. How about you? Do you want to do that? That's what I want to do. I wrote down some words I just want to share with you to kind of encapsulate that. And here's what I wrote down when I was thinking about just my own personal thoughts. I don't know what kind of desert you're living in right now. Talking to myself and talking to you. But you can either resent it or see it as a place God is calling you to live out your faithfulness to him. I don't know what kind of desert you're in right now. I don't know what you're facing in your marriage. I don't know what you're facing with your body. I don't know what you're facing with your kids. I don't know what you're facing at work. I don't know what you're facing economically. I don't know the desert you're in right now. But you got a choice. You can either resent it, become bitter and angry, or you can say, God, I don't necessarily understand it, but this is where you're calling me to live out my life, so I'm pouring my life out for you. Suffering for you. For your glory, for your praise, and for your honor. That's what Paul did. That's how he looked at life. I want to pour my life out for God. All right, let's look at the next verse. He says, or let's stay at verse 6. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. Now he says, the time of my death, or other translations have it, the time of my departure is near. And he uses a, a, a very interesting Greek word for departure. It's Greek word analuesos, from which we get our English word analyze. The time of my analuesos is near. The time of my analysis is near. What on earth does that mean? Well, actually, that word represents four different word pictures. The Greek language is very symbolic. It's very rich in its meaning. And so there are four word pictures I want you to grasp as you think about Paul and his suffering and as you think about yourself in your own suffering that you might be going through. First of all, it can refer to a rope like this, a cord like this one. And in its one meaning, analysis, it refers to a rope like this where the strands are separated and it's unbraided, so to speak. And then those separate strands are pulled apart even further so that you come down to the very fiber that composes that rope. What Paul is saying is, my time, the time of my life and my ministry is about to be unraveled and laid bare before God. And in essence, what he's saying is, as my life is unraveled, as my life is laid bare to, before God's eyes, as God, as God analyzes my life, I want it to be composed of living for his glory. I want it to be composed of living for his purpose. I want it to be composed of seeking to please him. If right now you were to die and your life were to be unraveled and analyzed by God and each strand were to be pulled apart, would it be seen that you lived for yourself or would each strand tell a story of how you lived for God by living for others? unselfishly, serving, seeking to honor him, pouring your life out for him. What would it reveal? If your life was this rope right now, what would the strands of your life reveal? Is it all about you or is it all about God? Analuesos, analyze. 
It has another meaning uh, as well. Anuesos can refer to being shackled. All right, so we've got these handcuffs. And there are two images that are being used here by the Apostle Paul. One, it can refer to the yoking of an animal to a plow. And that animal under that yoke would pull that plow, that heavy burden. And sometimes when you're suffering, you feel like you're pulling a weight, don't you? It's a heavy burden. And Paul felt the burden of spreading the gospel. He felt the burden of persecution, the burden of suffering, the burden of all the churches. It can also refer to being shackled to someone, shackled to a weight or shackled to a soldier. And the Apostle Paul spent a fair amount of time being shackled to the Roman guards that were given charge over him. And what Paul says to Timothy is, my time is coming near. My time is coming near. My shackles are about to fall off. And I'm about to be released from my pain and from my suffering and from my burden. I don't know the desert you're in right now. I don't know what that weight is that you're carrying. I don't know if it's the weight of loneliness, if it's the weight of physical pain, if it's the weight of, of, of uh, other kinds of difficulties, but hang in there because guess what? Your desert's not going to last forever. Someday, the Lord's going to return or God's going to call you home and that weight and that responsibility is going to fall off. Right now, right here, right now, God wants you just to live your life out for him. God wants you just to pull that burden along and give him the glory. God wants you to look to him and not to yourself so that people will marvel and say, how does he or she do that? How do they survive in that marriage? How do they survive in that job situation? How do they survive with that pain? How do they survive with all that temptation around them? How do they make it? They don't live for themselves. They live for God. There's another picture that Anuluesos is uh, uh, conveying to us. And it's the idea of pulling up stakes and moving on. That's why we've got the tent out here, all right? And uh, I hate camping, but maybe some of you enjoy it, all right? My idea of camping is at the Marriott. But anyway, uh, for those of you who love to camp... Right? A, a tent is just very temporary. You set it up, you put the stakes down, you camp for however long you can stand it, and then you take the stakes out, you pack the tent on and up, and you move on, right? Paul says, I'm getting ready to pull up stakes. I'm getting ready to move on. He saw his time here on earth as temporary. For him, it was not a permanent dwelling place. You know, I told you before, I, I grew up as a missionary kid, and when we came back to the mission field, my folks never had much money, and so we never, I, I never lived in a home, a permanent home. We, we lived in house trailers or, or double-wide mobile homes. So I grew up on wheels my whole life. I'm trailer trash. I'm proud of it, all right? That's how I grew up. I never, I didn't own a house till I got married. And now with, you know, when you live around here, my goodness, it just got my tax bills insane, isn't it? I mean, it's just ridiculous. The value of your house goes down, but your taxes go up. I told my wife, we're moving into a house trailer. <laughs> and you know, there's, there's something, I don't know if it's my missionary background or whatever, but I've had friends say to me, Dale, you got a little bit of the Apostle Paul in you. It's really hard for you to sit still. It's like you always have to be moving. Like you always have to be, you know, going and doing something new and something different. And I guess that's how God 
uh, has, has wired me to this very day, I don't really care about living in a house. It doesn't matter to me. My wife likes having the nest in the house, and I think that's wonderful and great, but I guess because I never grew up with one, it's no big deal to me. I don't really ever feel home anywhere. Maybe part of that's being a missionary kid. I don't know, but there's part of me that's grateful for that because I tell you what, I don't want to call this world my home anymore. And I like that old song, you know? This is not my home anymore. I am passing on. I am looking forward to heaven. How about you? You looking forward to heaven? See, the problem is a lot of us are just focused here on this earth. You know what I mean? We just think about, we live as though this were it. This is a stopping point. Our lives end here. So I got to make the best of it here because I'm all done. This is life, man. This is life. What a horrible life. The reality is there's home waiting for us someday. And right now, we have to be agile. We have to be mobile. We have to be willing to move with God and not find ourselves rooted in materialism and rooted in this world. Amen? But have our bags packed and ready to go home. And ready to go home. Which takes us to the last meaning that you can get from Anluesos. And that is anchor. Right? And the picture here is of a ship that is moored to the dock. And an anchor has been dropped. And Paul likens his life to a ship. And he's saying, you know what, Timothy? The rope is being undone. The anchor is being pulled up. Timothy, guess what? I'm getting ready to leave. So hurry up and get here. Paul's expectation of going to heaven is overwhelming. It outdoes, it outshines the suffering that he's going through. I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes you're going through a desert of suffering. It can seem like an eternity, but I'm here to tell you it's short-lived. And I'm telling you that one of the ways you deal with moving and going through suffering is not to focus so much on your suffering, but to focus on that day when you shall finally see the face of Jesus. Amen. And we have so much to look forward to. So Paul packs a lot in just one word, doesn't he? He says, the time of my anuluesos, the time of my departure is at hand. And Timothy, I hope you get here on time before I go home. I jotted this down as well. Remember, whatever the desert is that you feel trapped in right now, it's only temporary. Someday, sooner than you think, you'll be going home. Stay faithful. Live for the Lord today. Tomorrow, you're going to see him. Amen? Tomorrow, you and I, we're going to see him. Now, look what Paul says in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. He uses a Greek word there, it's agon, from which we get agony. He says, man, I have agonized through my life to stay faithful, to stay true to God. I have fought the good fight. I have fought it well. I've given it my best effort. He says, I have finished the race. He uses another word, to die, which is the word Jesus announced when he said on the cross, it is finished. It means the debt is paid. Paul uses it here to say, I have completed God's purpose. He's calling me home. So I accept that this was the purpose of my life, to suffer for him. And I have remained faithful. I've not turned back. 
I've kept moving forward. I've lived faithfully and honorably for the Lord. He says, and now the prize awaits me. What prize? He says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me. Now he's talking to all of us. But for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. What's this prize all about? Well, he's drawing from ancient culture, ancient custom. You know, back in the, in the, the days of the Greeks, they had... They had like the Olympics. They had these games that they would play. And each city would send its best athletes to play in those games. And when the athletes came home, if they had been successful, they would receive a laurel wreath which they would wear. And for the athletes who were particularly successful, who were really, really good, they would put a bronze plaque on the city wall with their name on that plaque. Not only that, but they would cancel all of the athlete's debts. Not only that, but the athlete and his family would be tax-exempt for the rest of their lives. Not only that, but the merchants also promised to make sure that they would always have a supply of great food. Man, missed my calling. How about you? Huh? It's how they honor the athlete. Paul says, I'm going home. And he says, I'm looking forward to that crown of righteousness. But here's the amazing thing. Here's what Paul means. He doesn't mean like a reward that God's going to give him, like a trophy or money or a mansion or anything like that. He says, I'm going home and I can't wait to get home and hear God say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. You are not guilty. You have been justified by the blood of my son. He says, I can't wait to get home and not just know it, but hear it from my Lord's lips. Welcome home, Paul. What a day that's going to be, huh? I can't wait to go home in some ways. Go home, and I'm not going to have to fear being punished by God. Go home, and I'm not going to have to fear being read the right act by God. Go home, and I don't have to fear about God weighing my works in the balance to see if I was good enough. Going home because the blood of Jesus Christ being declared accepted, being declared God's adopted son, and being welcomed into his heaven. What a joy. What a tremendous joy we have waiting before us. Amen? Amen. Looking forward to it. And it makes going through this desert of suffering a little easier knowing what's coming ahead. Let me tell you about Charles Engel and Ray Zahab and Kevin Lynn. They know endurance better than most. For 111 days, they ran the equivalent of two marathons a day in order to cross the entire Sahara Desert on foot. They touched the waters at Senegal and they made their way through Mauritania, Mali, Nigeria, Libya, and Egypt to touch the waters of the Red Sea. Along the way, the trio faced blazing afternoons of over 100 degrees, jarring, freezing nights, sandstorms, tendonitis, violent sickness, and the usual aches, pains, and blisters. But the biggest challenge they faced can be summed up in one word. What do you think it is? Water. Water. Finding it in its purest, cleanest form gets to be a bit of a chore while in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And that reminded me of a very beautiful picture that Paul conjured up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. Paul reminded the the readers that he was writing to of how 
in the wilderness, the people became thirsty, and God told Moses to speak to the rock, and water would come out of the rock. Now, Moses disobeyed and beat the rock with the staff and got into a lot of trouble for it. But God nonetheless brought water out of that rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says that while the children of Israel in the wilderness, they ate spiritual food, they drank spiritual water because Christ was providing for them in the wilderness. Christ was their food. Christ was their water. Listen carefully to me. When you are going through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to fear any evil because Christ is with you. And sometimes that's our only hope. And sometimes that's our only strength. But what a hope and what a strength. To realize that while I am suffering, I am not suffering alone. Christ is suffering with me. He is here to help pull the weight. He is here to understand the burden. And I can get obsessed with myself or I can say, Lord, since you are here, I am going to pour my life out even in the suffering for your glory and for your honor. What kind of suffering are you going through right now? You know, there's some of you that are going through emotional suffering because you're in a difficult relationship, perhaps, in your marriage. And everything in you wants to throw the towel in and give up. Listen carefully to me. You can't give up. Do you know why you can't give up? Because Christ is there with you. It's not about you anyway. He's asking you in that difficult relationship to pour your life out in unselfishness to him and to glorify him there in the midst of all of that. Some of you are going through a desert of lust. You are being tempted on every side. It may be same-sex temptation. It may be temptation for that girl uh, that you're dating or that guy. Or it might be that girl or that guy at work. And you're not asking for it, but it's just coming at you right and left. And you feel its power. And you want out, but it's still there. In the midst of that desert of lust right now, you got a choice. You can either give in. And feed that appetite in your flesh. Or you can say, oh God, I'm going to pour my life out. And I am going to honor your word. And I'm going to live a pure life in front of the world. And show them what Christ can do in someone's life. Some of you are going through a desert of, of physical pain. And it's not been one day, it's been one, two, ten, fifteen, maybe twenty years of physical pain. And sometimes you just want to shout and scream and tell God you're angry at him and give up. Don't give up. He understands pain. He experienced excruciating pain. And yet in his death, he offered redemption. Will you pour your life out in your physical suffering to give God glory and praise to turn people's attention toward him? See, no matter what desert you're in, no matter what you're facing right now, you got a choice. You can either get consumed with yourself or you can say, God, you put me in this desert to glorify you. Therefore, I'm going to pour my life out to your glory. What's your choice going to be? Would you bow your heads with me? I know some of you right now are experiencing a desert, maybe one that I haven't even mentioned. You are weary this weekend. You are discouraged this weekend. 
You thought about giving up, bailing out, caving in. Hey, listen. It's only temporary. You're not alone. Don't give in. You can make it across this desert by putting your focus on Christ. By seeing it as an opportunity to live your life out for Him. And I'd love to pray for you this weekend, no matter what desert you're in. So if you're here and you feel like you're in a desert right now and you just want me to pray over you, then right where you are with our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just stand right where you are? Just go ahead and stand. And let me just pray over you right now. You're in a desert. You feel trapped. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're weary. Dear gracious God, I know what it's like to be in the desert from my own life and some of my own experiences. And God, sometimes we just want to give up. We just want to get so angry or so discouraged. Sometimes we wonder if you're even there, if you even care. But we know, we know this weekend that you are there, that you do care, and that our deserts aren't meaningless. They are places for us to live out our faith in a way Oh, God, that doesn't point to us, but points to you. Give strength to my friends in their journey through the desert right now to stay strong and stay faithful to you. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. You can be seated.